Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Such a joy to be there in the front just to hear you all sing and worship. And it makes you know, my job preaching so much easier when you have a church full of people that love the Lord, love to worship, and are eager to see what God has to say. So we'll be in 1 John 2.15 to 17 today. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and go there. Well, I wanted to start this morning with a little word association game. You know, church and fun can go together, so play a little game here. It won't be the most fun you've ever had, but hopefully it's fun. So the goal of this is to get your mind working, and the way this works, word association games, I'm going to show a word on the screen. Now, when you see that word, normally you would shout out the first thing that comes to mind. And I'm going to ask you not to do that, mainly because I want to save you the embarrassment of saying something a little crazy and your neighbor giving you a weird look. So you don't have to shout it, but when I show a word, what's the first word or image that comes to mind. So we'll do a practice round. So first one, bat. So you think of a baseball bat? Do you think of a flying bat? Do you think of Batman, Batgirl? Lots of different things could go on. So bat, what comes to mind? What about church? I've raised hands. How many of you thought of a church building of some kind? How many of you thought of like Christians gathering together? That's what you think of when you thought of church. Yeah, a lot more. Maybe you thought of a Bible. Maybe you thought of something in your church growing up. I think of ugly red carpet for some reason. The church had that. So who knows what you'll think of, but that's church. Two more. Football. Maybe you thought of a literal football. Maybe you thought of the NFL draft this weekend. Maybe you thought of a specific team like the Colts. Maybe you thought of Tom Brady and his five Super Bowl rings. I said maybe. I don't know what you thought of, but football can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Well, last one, most important one, what about world? What comes to mind when you think of the term world? Do you imagine a globe or planet Earth? Do you think of worldliness, whatever that means? Do you think of just lots of people, the world out there? Do you think of nature, something in nature, like trees blooming? Well, when you hear the word world, is it something positive or negative? Is it something you're a part of, or is it something outside of you? Well, hopefully that gets us thinking about words can have very different meanings. And the meanings we give to words matters, as we'll see today. So if you haven't gone there, go to John 2.15. We'll be in verses 15 through 17. And today we'll be talking specifically about what John means when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And to get at this command, we'll look at three things. We'll look at first the command. So what we shouldn't love. And then I actually rearranged second and third, so an audible in here. But second, we'll look at the characteristics. What does love of the world look like? And then third, we'll look at the reasons why we shouldn't love the world. So let's read this together. First John 2, 15 to 17. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with it its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, the first thing we'll look at is the command, what we shouldn't love. This section does begin with a command, and just, you know, this is the first command that John gives in this whole letter. It's the first of ten commands. 
And so as I mentioned, essential to understanding what this command is, what he, was, what he wants you to not do or do, it really depends on how you interpret the word world. So here are a few ways people have taken world and then how they've taken the command in a different way. So world could mean people or unbelievers, the world out there. You could take that then to mean that Christians should kind of create a bubble where we separate from unbelievers. This could also mean the physical world or creation. It could mean the nations, peoples, countries, that kind of thing. It could mean government. It could mean world in the sense of worldliness, and again, you have to define that. But world can mean a lot of different things. And unfortunately, people have taken a specific interpretation of world, and then how they understand that meaning, they can take the command several different ways. Well, if you summarize world, and it's used in the Bible in different ways, this is part of why we're talking about but really it's used in two primary ways. So first, it can just refer to the earth, including its inhabitants and environments. That's a positive thing. God created the world. But it can also refer to this sinful world opposed to God, kind of under the power of Satan. I'll give you a couple examples of each. So first, there are lots of verses like Psalms 24.1 that speak positively about the world. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell in it. Negatively, John 12, 31 says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So do you see how the word is used differently in those circumstances? Well, there's an important distinction, and this is why we bring all of the Bible together. And what John means here specifically, so in our text today, he means the fallen world or sinful ways of the world, opposed to God and under the rule of the enemy. In her book, Enjoy, Trillia Newbell writes this, Being of the world means to take its values and its priorities as our own. And by world, John meant those things that would be against the Lord. So with the right understanding now of world in place, we can actually apply John's command. So this whole sermon will sort of spell out what it means to love the world or what it doesn't mean. But we might summarize it in this way. It means giving your affections and your allegiance over to the things that aren't of God. It's to give your love and your loyalty to anything other than God. Commentator Gary Burge writes, John has in mind here with this command that Christians are to avoid an infatuation with worldly godlessness with the realm of darkness that brings base pleasures. Such affection is incompatible with the true love of the Father. So that's the command. Pretty simple now that we understand world. He's saying don't love the world. Well, to see what that actually looks like, we're going to move into second part, the characteristics. And again, it says three, but don't get excited. We're not that far into the sermon. We're only number two, so there's a long way to go. But secondly, we're going to look at the characteristics. So what does it mean to love the world? Now, I think this is here in part because it'd be easy for most of us to say, oh, yeah, obviously, I love God. I don't love the world. But these three characteristics kind of help us see, well, what would that actually look like or not look like? How do we know if and when we are loving the world? So look at verse 16 with me. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, Charles Spurgeon called these the devil's trinity, and we'll look at each one of them. 
So first we have desires of the flesh. The NIV or NASB, if you have one of those, it says lusts of the flesh. And desires of the flesh are really the sinful cravings we have for something. Desires to consume something selfishly. It can refer to good desires you have for the wrong reasons. It can refer to actually desiring the wrong things. Or it can refer to a good desire that is elevated to an idolatrous, lustful demand. Karen Job summarizes this in this way. She says, The impulse of human behavior that arises from the natural, even God-given physical need. The desires of the flesh may be natural, but our fallen nature drives people to satisfy them in ways that are not of God, leading to things like gluttony, alcoholism, and sexual immorality. So I should kind of pause here and say that desire itself is not bad. That God created us to have desires, and they are meant to push us to fulfill those desires in God-intended ways. So whether that be a desire for physical hunger, the desire to be loved, the desire for joy, these are all good and natural desires. But because of our sinful flesh, desires can be negative or then become a sinful thing when they're not actually aimed at the proper object, when we misuse them for selfish reasons. So the problem is actually not desire, but it's when we let desire rule us rather than ruling them. The problem with our desires is when things become an idol because we look to them not simply as gifts, but as something that gives us security, significance, or satisfaction. So this first characteristic here, this first characteristic of worldliness, it talks about a very specific kind of desire, desires of the flesh. And when the Bible talks about flesh, it's not just meaning the body, but the body as it's under kind of the sway of our sinful self. The flesh is the me before Christ, the me apart from Christ. The flesh is that which is absent of the Spirit or even that which is opposed to the Spirit. Another kind of famous passage is Galatians 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit where it says this about our flesh. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what are just a couple examples of this? You know, we've talked a lot about how it could be a wrong desire, but often it's a good desire that we kind of warp, misuse, and send it in the wrong direction. So for example, we're created for a desire to be in meaningful relationships, the the desire to belong, the desire to have friendships. And yet we can take that And it leads us to abusing or misusing people, of wanting them to fulfill us, of having a fear of man because I'm worried about how do they think of me. It could also be that we have a desire for intimacy. Again, God gives us a natural desire for intimacy, and yet our fallen flesh can take that a hundred different directions. Or think of it like this. It's okay to have a desire to be on time for a meeting. But what's not okay is how we respond. So when you're driving in hyperspeed and the way you may or may not act godly, which is seen through the words you say, the thoughts you have, and the gestures that other people can see you making. They see it, God sees it, I'm just saying. Or it's okay, last one, this is a desire we have. We all have a desire to fit in. So whether you're in school or at work, our desire is to fit in, and that's a good thing. 
the problem isn't when we start to gossip to fit in, when we participate in dirty jokes we know we shouldn't to fit in, or when we hide our faith so that we know people will like us. In all these examples, our flesh takes our desires and it causes us to do something wrong with them, something that isn't wise and good. So it begins good, but it doesn't go good. So that's the desires of the flesh. Moving to the second one, we see the desires of the eyes, or again, your Bible might say, lust of the eyes. And if you're asking, well, how do these two fit together? I think the desires of the flesh are the overarching category, and then desires of the eyes are one way this is lived out. And not surprisingly, it means something the eyes see and they want. That the eyes see something, kind of the heart's desires and lusts start going, and then the person is hooked. They're often the things that immediately appeal to our senses, but the craving is a fleshly one, not a God-given one. We see this in Genesis 3.6. So kind of a classic example is Adam and Eve, when Eve is tempted. Here's what Genesis 3.6 says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So for Eve, it's probably not true that this is the first time she's seen this forbidden fruit, but she now sees it in a different way. When she looks on what Satan offers her, she's tempted. And part of that is because Satan's not just giving her a piece of fruit. He's offering something more. Here's the chance to be like God. Here's the chance to be happy, to have more knowledge, to be full. And so this is why some in this phrase, desires of the eyes, they've kind of talked about it as a reference to short-sighted desires, that we only see the immediate thing in front of us, and we don't see what's really behind the package. One commentator defines it as the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. So when John here mentions lusts of the eyes, he's not only referring to the things we see, but the things we desire through what we see. He's pointing to the reality that there's always something behind what's drawing our attention and something that is usually going to deceive us and lure us in. A thing that looks shiny and offers potential should be seen for what it is. So in other words, when it comes to the desires of the eyes, we don't only have to be on guard against what we see, but what we're seeing in what we see. We have to be on guard with what's in front of us, but what desire is being tickled there? What is being offered? What is being promised through the temptation? And this is why idols are so powerful and so hard to replace. It's because they promise to deliver on something. They promise to fulfill you, to give you something, to create an image of who you are. Idols, um, they actually promise to fulfill an internal longing. So it's not merely what we see, it's what we see and what we see. And this can be seen even in how advertisement and marketing works. So the whole point of marketing and advertisement, it's really meant to appeal to your desires of the eyes. And this happens in a couple of ways. First, if you think about commercials, magazine covers, ads when you're on social media or the internet, all of these things aim to just grab your attention. 
So whether it's like a visual image, a shocking line, a rumor that's going, like what's Justin Bieber doing now, who are the Kardashians dating, it's something that will just draw your interest in. It may be garbage, but there's something you see and you're pulled in. Well, not only that, but advertisement also works by selling you a, not just a product, but something bigger. They're actually promising to do something for you, to give you something, to help you with your identity, or to help you belong. They're offering to fill a desire. You know, when we buy a phone, it's not just a phone that helps us, but it's a chance to be cool, to not be left behind when it comes with technology, to impress people with our pictures. That's what you buy when you buy a phone. You know, when guys buy a really manly truck, it's not just a truck, but it's a chance to impress other dudes. I'm okay with that. I love manly trucks. Or when we buy a minivan, when you see that ad on the TV about the minivan, it's not just that. It's the image of the kids being quiet and everyone having a good time and making perfect memories, and this minivan is going to grant all our wishes. That's what you're buying. Or me, when I, this is one of the reasons why I buy North Face clothes. Now, the line of North Face, it says a few things. It says, hey, I'm not completely out of style. I'm somewhat manly. I like to be outdoors, and I like adventure, but I'm not a redneck. And that's kind of <laughs> the image I like to go for. And so when you buy North Face, you're not just buying the product, but I'm trying to convince myself that's who I am and convince you. You know, I'm a sub- guy who lives in suburbia. I might not be out climbing mountains, catching lake trout, but the guys in the North Face jackets are. <laughs> Makes me feel kind of like I'm part of the club. And that's what advertisements do. They're not just offering you a product. They're giving you a promise. They're not just saying this will add to your life. They're saying your life is incomplete without this. And this is what the world tries to do by appealing to the desires of the eyes. It's not just that the world wants to seduce us with the wrong pleasures, the things we clearly know are wrong. It's that that we're seduced by the desires of the eyes, good things that become God things because we look to them to find value, to find joy, and to make or break who we are. Well, third and finally, we come to what John calls pride in possession. Those of you who grew up on the KJV might remember the phrase, pride of life. Well, in the NIV it says, boasting of what he has or does. The NASB says, the boastful pride of life. And the NLT says, pride in our achievements and possessions. And those various translations hit at specific words. You hear pride and boasting. And you're boasting in achievements and stature and in worldly goods or stuff. So if the first two characteristics are saying you're tempted to make an idol out of what you don't have, this third characteristic says you're probably making an idol out of what you do have. That it's feeling like who we are, what we've done, or the stuff we have, that's what sets us apart. It's putting the weight of your trust in those things. It's taking something that's not bad, but again, elevating it and making it ultimate. So it's not just that I have this job, but this job defines me. It's not just that we own nice things, but I I look to those nice things to fulfill me, to impress other people, or to say things about my life. So with this third characteristic, worldliness might not be going after sin as you typically think, but it's just ignoring God because life seems pretty good. Your money, your job, your hobbies, 
your status in life and comforts caused you to coast through life and snuggle up next to the world rather than God. Well, hear me, money, possessions, security, ability, and achievements, none of those things are bad things. I'd love to have more of all those things, to be honest. But the problem is when we trust in them, when they make or break our happiness, when we demand that we have them, or when our worth and our identity is found in them, when we boast in those things rather than boasting in the cross like we sang about this morning, that's when we've made an idol out of good things. So whether it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or pride in possessions, the world appeals to our longing, both our hopes and our fears, our cravings with offers to fulfill what we really want. They are idols that offer to take the place of God in our lives. And as we've seen, the truth is you were created with desires. You were created to love. But his point is to love and desire the right things and not the wrong things. So having looked now, we saw the command, don't love the world. We just looked at three characteristics. So what does that love of the world look like? Well, now we move into the, kind of the third part, the reasons. What does John say for why we should not love the world? Well, he'll give three reasons, and I'll go through these, but to kind of lay them out for you. First, he says, all that is in the world is not of God, but it's against God. Second, you cannot love both God and things that are opposed to God at the same time. And then third, the world and its sinful desires will all pass away. So we'll run through each of these quickly. First, things cannot come from both the world and come from God. So let's read 16, and this time I'm going to skip over what's between the dashes. It says, For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. So all John's getting at here is that the source isn't God, but it's the world against God. That the ways and the values and the beliefs and the practices that the world is promoting to and holding out are not the designs and the will and the heart of God. You know, and to love the world then, to love these things that God has said, these are not only wrong, but I've designed you in an opposite way. That's how we get after the things that are not from God, but are from the world. And God knows what leads to our good. God knows how we were made to flourish. And God knows what will give the most joy. And so John says, don't go after the things that are from the world, because they are not from God. It's sort of like when I put something together for either my daughter Lily or at our house. So, you know, whether it's we've bought our 10th Ikea product and now I get to put it together, or I get one of those toys with a thousand pieces and you get the fun job of figuring it out. Well, because I like to move things through things quickly, I often put aside the directions and I just try to make it work. So that can lead to me hammering things harder to make it go in the hole or using some duct tape. But what I've noticed is when I go away from the directions, Things will look good, they'll work good for a little while, but it doesn't take long before they start to break. That the designers, they gave you a blueprint. They gave you directions because they know why and how a product was made. Well, that's kind of what John is arguing for here. That it's only in living with God's ways, God's design, and God's will that we actually lead to our joy and our satisfaction. That the world will say it has your best in mind, but their practices and their values, these are all opposed to how God has said, I've made you and how you were meant to function. So what we learn is that God's ways work and ungodly ways will not work. 
So he says, first, these things don't spring from the Father, and therefore they won't lead you back to God. They come from the world and lead you to the world. But second, we have a second reason here in verse 15. So again, these are reasons John gives for why you should not love the world. Verse 15 says, If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what John is saying here is that your heart can't, at the same time, love two opposite things. You can't say, oh, I love God and I love the world when those things are actually rivals and they're opposed to each other. You have to choose one. Either your heart will love God and your love for the world will diminish, or you'll love the world and your love for God will diminish. The book of James says this similarly. So James says this in James 4. Um, He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So John uses the language of love. You can't love both things. And James uses the language of friendship. You can't be friends with the world and God at the same time. And the reason you can't do that, again, is because they're actually opposed. They're not two complementary things. They're two competing things. It'd be like saying, I really value healthy eating, and I also really value cheese and fried foods and dessert. You know, recently I did Whole30, and what I learned is those two things are actually competing. Big surprise. So you either have to choose kale and sweet potatoes, or you get to choose Dr. Pepper and desserts. But the two are mutually exclusive. And as for me and my house, we choose Dr. Pepper. So... See uh, kale and sweet potatoes. But the point is, we know that there are some things that just don't work together. And that's what John is saying with God in the world. You choose God or you choose the world, but you can't have a little bit of both. This is how Charles Spurgeon says it. There, these two things are such deadly opposites that they cannot live together. Where the love of the Father is, there cannot be the love of the world. There is no room in us for two loves. The love of the world is essentially idolatry, and God will not be worshipped side by side with idols. You cannot send your heart at the same time in two opposite ways, toward evil and toward good. You must make a choice between the two. Now just to clarify, this is not saying that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you will never choose the world. It's not saying that you will never sin. But what this passage is saying is that if you're a believer, when you choose sin, when you choose the world, it means you're not choosing God. And when we do obey, when we choose God, it means you're not choosing the world. Well, the third reason we're given for not loving the world is in verse 17, our last verse. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides Here John is essentially saying that if you love the world, you're doomed. That when you attach your love to the world, it's wherever that boat is going, that's where you're going. And the world is doomed for passing away and destruction. But if you love God who abides forever, you'll abide forever as well. And this third reason, John really just wants to give us perspective. It's his Wizard of Oz moment where he peels back what is the world And what is worldliness? That these things might look big and bright, but they actually are fleeting. That they're unsatisfying. That they're enslaving. 
They're corrupting, and they're even soul-diminishing. But you have to see it for what it is. Again, you have to see what's beyond what you see. The things of this world are temporary, but the things of God are eternal. The things of this world will trap you and eventually crush you, but the things of God will set you free and give you life. Friendship with the world will eventually stab you in the back and leave you sad. But friendship with God, it never runs out, it never disappoints, and it never shortchanges us. So John's given us then three reasons not to love the world. Summarize those again. First, he says, the things of the world, they neither come from God, nor will they lead you to God. Second, you simply can't love two rival things. So you get to love God or love the world, but you can't love both. And then the third reason we should not love the world is because John is saying it simply won't satisfy you. It won't make you happy because the things of the world don't last. So now we've seen the command. We've seen the characteristics of the world. We've seen three reasons why you shouldn't love the world. So I just want to move into application and talk about two specific ways you take this text, everything we've talked about it, and could apply it to your own life. In our short text today, it doesn't actually go in depth about, well, how do you fight worldliness? How do you fight idolatry? If you come back next week in First John, we'll get into those things a little more. So come back and we'll talk about how do you battle ongoing temptation? How do you fight the sin that you're struggling with? But in our text, we did talk about an either-or equation. We talked about either you will love God and your love for the world will diminish. Or you will love the world and your love of God will diminish. And so what John is saying, what's kind of clear in that implication, is that you fight your love of the world at the level of desires, at the level of worship, at the level of your loves. That we do practical things to fight off sin, especially where we know we're tempted. But the battle is won or lost at the battle of the heart, where your desires are, where your love is, and with what you worship. You know, think of for your own life, when... Are you most tempted by worldliness and idolatry? When was the last time you fell into sin? Now my guess, and I speak partly from experience, is that I know when I'm not walking closely with God, that's when I'm much more tempted by the world. When my heart, when my soul, my appetite is not full with the things of God, I start looking for something else um, that I crave. And so what we learn in this is that we actually fight the world first and foremost, by cultivating a love and a satisfaction in God. And so the best thing you can do this week is to cultivate, to strengthen your appetite for knowing God. That you draw near to God and automatically you're distancing yourself from the world. That you love the things of the Spirit and automatically you're distancing your thing from the, yourself from the things of the flesh. Now I have to tease these out more in small group, but I just want to give you two quick applications. So these are ways you strengthen and you develop an appetite for God. The first would just be have meaningful times in the word and in prayer. And I know you're tired of that application. You're tired of hearing more Bible, more prayer. I'm tired of hearing that application. I'm tired of having to say that application. But the truth, the reality is that whatever we think and feel, we'll never desire God as much as we will when we're in the Word and when we're in prayer. You know, without exception, when I look at my life, kind of my love for the world, my love for God, it's gauged by the quantity of time and the quality of time I'm in the Word and I'm praying. That's where we see who God is like. That's where we see His promises, His attributes, His character, what He's done for us. 
that's where we're stunned by who God is. And so even though we mentally know it's true, we have to remind ourselves the greatest way to cultivate a love and a desire and a satisfaction in God simply by talking to him and listening to him. And the second thing I'd mention is to dwell on the gospel. That the gospel is a bottomless well of the amazing mercies of God. It tells us how faithful and kind and merciful he is and how undeserving we are. You know, for those of you who are new or by way of reminder, the gospel is simply the good news that answers our bad news. The bad news, as we've talked about, is the fact that we are sinners, that we choose the way of the world as opposed to choosing the way of God, that we choose our way rather than turning to God. And because of our sin, it means we're actually guilty, that we stand condemned before a holy God. So we need forgiveness. But not only that, the bad news gets worse. Not only are we guilty, but we're actually separated from the one person who created us to know him and to fill up that emptiness in our heart. Because of sin, we're estranged from God. We're alienated from him. We're far from him. So we're not only guilty, we are far from the maker, the only one who can make us happy and satisfied. Well, the good news is much better than the bad news. The good, answer, good news answers both problems. The good news is that God out of love and out of a desire to not leave you there, sends Jesus Christ to be our mediator and to die in our place. That because Jesus was perfect, because Jesus dies on the cross, our sins, that penalty, actually can be paid for. So that when we believe on Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we are actually forgiven of our sins, fully, freely, and forever. But not only that, there's better news than just that we get forgiveness of sins. The better news is we get God himself, that we are adopted into his family, that we can know that he loves us, that he is pleased with us, that his smile is upon us. So the gospel, when we meditate on it, it's a reminder of how loving God is, how gracious God is, how kind God is. And so the encouragement is as you rehearse the gospel, as you dwell on this truth, nothing else will warm your heart towards God like the gospel. Nothing else will make you more cold towards the world like remembering who God really is, what Jesus did for you, and the fact that you have a place at the table that you get God. And so the application is, first and foremost, we fight loving the world by creating an appetite for the love of God, which leads to our final application. It's not that our desires are too strong, but our desires are too weak. We feed our desires with little snacks rather than a hearty feast. That Jesus comes to give us life, and not just eternal life, but Jesus comes to give us life now. And that doesn't mean necessarily material blessing or abundance, but it's the offer, the invitation from God to come fill your soul, come fill your appetite on the only things that can actually satisfy you and fulfill you. It's the kind of life where your desires don't have to be squashed, but your desires are set loose on the right things, the most satisfying things. This is a reminder for Christians not only of what we get here, but what we have to offer the world. It's our apologetic and our witness. Because the truth is, people know they have deep desires. They know that there's something in their soul they're searching for. And yet, people will admit, even though they're driven by those desires, they often lead empty, unfulfilling lives because of what they set those desires on whether it's work, relationships, 
partying, fun, status, whatever it is, they move from thing to thing to thing, trying to fill up this craving of their heart. And you and I understand that. We've done that. We've, we've been there. And we know that will never fulfill. That will never make anyone happy. And so what we have to offer is Christianity, which is not saying no to your desires, which is not saying less about your desires, but it's saying point your desires in the right direction. That we have the one thing that can satisfy you, that an eternal, infinite God, the one who created you, who knows you, who designed you in specific ways, that you can actually be one with him, that your heart can be made full and joyful by God. Listen to what Jesus offers. He says this in John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's a promise to fulfill our desires and our longings. Or David says this in Psalm 16. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. John Piper writes, If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed by streetlights. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you will fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. And so the Christian life, it's not about giving up your joys, but it's about getting lasting joy. The Christian life is not about saying no to your pleasure, saying no to pleasure, saying no to desires, saying no to the longings of your heart. But it's about setting them in the right direction, the one who can fulfill you, the one who can quench our thirst. The world will merely offer you things that leave you empty and broken and wanting more. So my plea to you, and what I've been preaching to my own heart, is to stop feeding on goldfish crackers when God has given us a paid-for, reserved meal. That you don't go to McDonald's if you have a free gift card to Ruth's Chris. And God says, why are you going to these small, simple, meaningless pleasures when I've offered you the greatest of pleasures, I've offered to fulfill you completely. Listen to Psalm 107.9 as we close. For he, God, God satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul, he fills with good things. So this morning, is your soul hungry? Are you weary? Well, today, tomorrow, the rest of your life, fill it up with good things. Fill it up with God. That's what we're offered, and that's what we're promised. Would you pray with me? God, we do confess how often we are ruled by idols, by desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. And God, we don't want that. We know that you are more satisfying, that you alone can fulfill us. And so even now, we pray this week that you would cause us to seek you more, that we would boast in Christ alone that we would find joy in Christ alone, and that we would find meaning and fulfillment in Christ alone. So even now, God, as we sing, would you do that work, and would you stir those desires up within us? In Jesus' name.